Welcome to StartupCTO.io, the podcast where Miles Mathias and Kevin Owaki interview engineering leaders about management, startups, and software, because your CS degree didn't teach you to lead. And now, StartupCTO.io. Hello, everybody. I am Kevin Owaki. I am your co-host of StartupCTO.io, and I'm here with my co-host, Miles. Hey, everyone. Today on our program, we've got Chris McAvoy, Head of Engineering at Cognizant Digital Foundry. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome to have you. Uh, could you tee us off by telling us a little bit about your background and your work at Cognizant? Uh, sure. So I've uh, I've been in software and uh, and kind of computers um, for about almost 20 years now. Um, you know, have, have been programming my whole life and then uh, uh, turned it into a career. Um, I've worked at a kind of a variety of companies. I've never, never worked for a startup from scratch, but um, I've worked at a lot of companies that kind of get classified as startups. They usually come in mm-hmm. a little bit later in their life. Um, so I uh, worked for Threadless, a big t-shirt company a couple of years ago, worked for Mozilla for a few years, working on an uh, open education project called uh, Open Badges. Okay. Um, and, and have really built a, a career around um, building software engineering teams and, and developing engineers. Um, a lot of people join teams that I, I work on as, as juniors and then and leave as uh, mid or, or senior developers. So it's been, been a theme for my, my career up until this point. And uh, Cognizant is a gigantic company um, with 250,000 employees. Uh, 70% are based in India. Um, and they acquired a smaller boutique software development company based in Boulder, Colorado called QuickLeft. Uh, and I joined Quick Left uh, almost two years ago as the uh, VP of Engineering. And after the acquisition, I've um, I now uh, run the engineering group here in Boulder and Denver. Um, but I'm also uh, starting to work on a um, uh, project or a group inside of Cognizant that's building a, a startup incubator uh, for internal startups. So for mm-hmm. Uh, intrapreneurs. Okay. That. So, huh. so th- that's actually one of the themes that we really wanted to dive in looking at your profile. It seems like mentoring people and uh, enabling them to be successful is something that's really important. And I think that, what was it you said? Uh, you built a career out of building, like developing software engineers and people join your team as junior engineers and leave as mid-level or senior engineers. Could you tell me about why you love doing that? I mean, why has that been a pattern in, in your career? Well, I mean, it, you know, it's it's kind of, it's interesting. My mom is a kindergarten teacher or was a kindergarten teacher. She's retired okay. now. There's some fun al- analogies there, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and, and my sister is a teacher and, um, you know, I... I personally really like to learn new things. Like it's a, definitely a lifelong learner. Um, I think it's what attracted me to the open badges project at Mozilla. And, you know, I, I just think, I think it's a theme in my own life of, of continuing to learn and, and feeling um, lucky when I end up in a place that, that supports that. Um, so, you know, given that that's what I want from, 
from a job, I think it's just something that I've always made sure that I, I can provide for my teams. Um, I mean, it's not always possible, but, but as much as, as possible, I really do like to do it. And, and I mean, in practice, it, it means, um, you know, ha having access to learning resources, having time during the week, during, um, business hours to, uh, to learn new things, um, having the flexibility to, to experiment with, uh, new languages or new techniques or new platforms. But most of all, I think, honestly, I think it's also like the ability to, uh, to, to fail, um, without massive repercussions, like just, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's okay to make mistakes, um, you know, as long as you take care of them and, 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 uh, you know, keep, keep things moving forward as much as possible, but really, really like to create environments where people aren't, um, blasted if they, uh, if they try something new and it doesn't work out. Hmm. I'd love to know how do you personally, uh, you know, look into and have assess someone's skills and abilities and kind of where they are. Obviously you can look at their resume or something like that, but are there things that, that you do in working with people to, you know, first assess where they are so you can help them grow? Oh, okay. So for helping them grow. So I, in, in, in terms of hiring, like I've actually shifted a lot of, um, the responsibility for hiring really, uh, strong folks, um, to other people, because as much as I, I, I like to still mess around with technology, like I'm not, it's better for my senior, senior engineers to do technical interviews than me at this point. Um, mm -hmm. just to make sure that everybody's, you know, not like using 2006 technology. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. So I think that's where, where a lot of, uh, <laughs> A lot of my head is still at, unfortunately. But um, for the uh, for assessing where somebody is and then working with, so it's actually so we we started doing a thing here um, at, at so we call it Cognizant Quick Left, right? Because we were Quick Left and now we're part of Cognizant. But we started doing um, a goals planning um, technique here that actually started at a company based in Chicago called Table XI, or maybe it's Table Eleven. I'm not sure. But we, we watched a video on it, and it's really worked out well for us. So, so it's called the sticky note game. You, you get together with, with, uh, with the engineer, the developer that you're working with, and then they also bring kind of an advocate, like somebody that they um, trust. And it could be a peer. It could be uh, a more senior developer or something like that. And, and we spend about 15 minutes like, coming up with different goals on sticky notes. And then each each person individually. So me as their manager, um, uh, a trusted peer, and then they do it themselves. And then at the end of a couple minutes, we go through and kind of cluster the the sticky notes and and figure out plot a sort of a course for where they could go in the next six months. And and I really like that game a lot because I think it's difficult. I, I don't think it's possible to to sort of dictate a plan for somebody, you have to, you have to just be open to what, what they want to be able to do and then support them as much as possible. So definitely, um, believe in, in, in the kind of unstructured learning that I think is, is what, you know, really ends up sticking with people. Um, because there's definitely, I, it's, it's interesting, you know, now, now that I'm part of a very large company, when 
when somebody says they want to do something like learn Java, there's all these resources in the company. They're very, very structured. Like if you do this, this, and this, then we'll classify you as, I mean, it's like the, the traditional sort of cert certification program. Um, so you'll meet, you'll run into these ideas of like, well, if I get certified in Java, then I will know Java. But what I really prefer and what I think really helps people develop more is, is to, to kind of, to, to, to plan out their own learning pathway and say, you know, this is the kinds of stuff that I want to be able to do, find other people that have gotten to that point in their careers. And then through mentorship discussion, um, looking at, at, you know, code commits, whatever it takes, um, progressing towards that, that end goal that they've identified. Um, mm. I think it's just a, it's a much more effective way of learning. Yeah, that's the first time I've ever heard that technique, and I think that's awesome. I mean, that's that's really, really cool. There are so many different ways to learn, and as much as you can personalize it to the person that's trying to reach their goals, the better. And that's a, that's a really good practical game tip that uh, I'm going to share with a lot of people now. So yeah, that's, that's, I think I'm going awesome. to try that with one of my team members probably soon. <laughs> yeah, the, the Table XI guys um, uh, produced a video it's like a 15 minute video where they go through the whole process too. So I've never met them. I don't know if I'd get along with them. I have no idea, but their video is really <laughs> awesome. So okay. We'll uh, put that into the episode notes then. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I think it's interesting that um, you have had this career arc where you've been very focused on developing people and helping them achieve their goals uh, and now that's being formalized into, I think you called it an incubator that you guys are running internally at Cognizant. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so a bunch of the people involved with quick left, um, have also been in, involved with tech stars over the last couple of years. So I, I started mm -hmm. as a, um, as a mentor in, uh, tech stars in Chicago and then, um, joined the, the Boulder group here when I moved here two years ago. Um, and the co-founder of Quick Left, uh, Ingrid, uh, who was on the show, I think, I think you guys interviewed her a little while ago. Yep. A few episodes um, ago. Yep. Has also been really involved in, uh, tech stars and also, uh, merge lane and, and some other uh, incubators. And so, um, I mean, if you have a company with 250,000 people, then you really have to do whatever you can to, to identify ideas inside of the, the company to try to push things forward. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the theme is that um, we, we let people submit ideas. Um, and then uh, if, if we think it's a viable idea and it kind of fits in with the larger goals of, of Cognizant, um, then we help them develop it both um, through really focused uh, Techstars style mentorship, um, help them develop a business plan, um, a go-to-market plan, and, and a technology plan. And so we, we help them develop the product. We, we provide um, engineering resources and, and all kinds of mentorship resources. Um, and then they, they join this program as their full-time job, like for, I think we're talking about uh, three months right now. Um, so the first cohort, the first group of, um, of ideas 
is scheduled to start up here uh, in April. And then we'll run them through it and, and see what we produce. But um, yeah, there's a, a lot of good people involved and, and we're taking ideas from a lot of, uh, you know, what we've seen be successful in, in, uh, mm-hmm. in the startup incubator world and also some of our own experience. So I'm curious, I, have, I, I went through Techstars and Miles is uh, a CTO of a Techstars company. Uh, so I'm sort of familiar with, with their model. And I think that um, one of the things that really motivated me going through Techstars was the amount of upside that was associated with, uh, with all of the skills and learning that I was building while I was building a company. And I'm curious what the motivations are when you're running an, an incubator inside of a large company like like Cognizant and how that bleeds down into the type of people that are going through the incubator. I mean, I'm assuming that people aren't actually getting equity in, in their ideas. I'm assuming that these are people who sort of want to advance their career or want a change of pace. Um, what kind of people have you seen gone through the incubator uh, at Cognizant? Well, we, we haven't had a class yet, but I can, I can tell the first one is, will be this, uh, this April. But okay. I can, I can tell you like the, the thing you identified is, is the first thing that people will say, especially if they've got a, a traditional startup background. Um, because, you know, if you, if you come from relatively small companies or, or, you know, startups that, you know, maybe have gotten big, the, the corporate world is, is a very different animal. Um, and so there's a lot of questions about like, well, you know, if you're developing this idea inside of a, of a 30 plus billion dollar market cap company, like what about equity? Like are, is who, who owns the idea? Um, and so, and it's, it's been an interesting transition, but the, the, the real idea is like, so here, the example that I like to give when we talk about this stuff is, is Amazon Web Services. I, I have no idea how mm-hmm. Amazon Web Services came along, but I do know that Amazon was a very, very large company, uh, sold a lot of books and a lot of other stuff. And then out of, out of nowhere, they came up with Amazon Web Services. And so somebody had to have that idea and somebody had to advocate for it and somebody had to, to, to push for it inside of Amazon. Um, and I would consider that person an entrepreneur, right? They came up with this idea, they developed it, and it turned into a very large line of business for, for the company that they worked for. It probably wasn't an individual, it was probably a bunch of people, but but the, the point still stands that like whoever came up with that idea or whatever group of people came up with that idea, I'm pretty sure they're doing really well inside of Amazon right now. Um, and so, you know, you can you can you can take a ton of risks and you can, um, you know, start a, a company from scratch. Um, but you can apply the same kind of ideas. You can still take risks, uh, and you can still get rewards inside of very large companies, um, doing, doing very similar actions to what you would do if you were starting something from scratch. Okay. One, one way I've seen that termed in the past is an intrapreneur. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I guess I, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I, I guess they're just combining like internal with preneur. So okay. I, I definitely said it. I say it sometimes. <laughs> okay. Well then I'm not, the, I'm not the only one who buzzworded us. This no, morning. man, you're, you're totally right. It's the right word. Got it. And uh, so that's, uh, and, and you're also uh, a mentor at Techstar, as I saw on your LinkedIn profile. Could you tell me a little bit about that and how that's been for you? 
Yeah. Um, so I started a couple of years ago in, in uh, the Chicago um, Techstars program. And it happened, uh, I had met um, the general manager there, um, Troy Hennikoff. I think his title is general. I'm not sure what his title is, but he's, he's really involved with the Techstars program. Um, and he needed help um, finding uh, people to work inside of the Hackstars program, which is like the group of developers and designers that will support uh, Techstars teams. And so that, that's initially how I got involved. And then I was also on a, like a panel to help um, the company, the Techstars company CTOs uh, with their technology plans and roadmaps. Um, and I really enjoyed it, really liked the people. And then uh, when, I, when I moved to Boulder, um, Troy introduced me to uh, uh, Nicole Glaris, who uh, is real involved with the Boulder program, is now involved with the larger Techstars program. Um, so that's kind of how I got involved. I mean, I, I've been doing, I think it's, it's my fourth year now. Um, really like working with the companies. I mean, everybody's super passionate about their ideas and really excited to be there. Um, and you just get, you just get an opportunity to be exposed to a lot of people that are excited about their work, uh, which I value, you know, I don't really like hanging out with people that are kind of bored with their work. I want to, I want to meet people that are excited and, and ready to do interesting things. Right. Yeah. I had a sort of similar arc when I, uh, when I got accepted into Techstars, I was in corporate America and I, it was just such a culture shock for me to, to go through the Boulder program and have all these people who were just, you know, they're, they're just like on fire with their ideas and they were going to make it happen. And I, I just found that, that so refreshing. It was one of the Things that I did not expect that was really rewarding about getting involved in the larger Boulder community. Yeah, agreed. You're sort of like in this really interesting world in which, which, in, in which you were at uh, Quick Left, which was a very small startup, and uh, you guys were acquired by Cognizant, which is a very, very large company. I think the the number that you were talking about earlier was something around thirty billion, and I don't know if that was revenue or market cap or, but that, that's just way more than any startup I've ever worked for. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about what it's like to get acquired and to start uh, integrating with a larger company? It, it was a lot weirder than I would have thought. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> difficult. I'll just be honest. It was really, it was kind of tough, um, but. Now that we're on the other side of it, I can I can kind of look back and and feel like oh it was it was pretty smooth. But at, at the time when you're in the middle of it, little things can get really strange. So um, stuff like you know our our team had to do um, security training as an example, right? And the the training was really really only worked inside of Internet Explorer, and we're a hundred percent Mac shop and um we had a really difficult time just like logistically handling some some very small strange things right um and so but those all can kind of add up and and really grind at you and then it can make things seem uh worse than they are or you can kind of miss out on on the opportunities of a larger company because of some of the the annoyances of a larger company um, but you know, once you get through it, you start to realize like, holy cow, this, I mean, this company has like near limitless 
resources. Um, you know, if, if you have an idea um, and you can convince the people around you of, of the idea, like it, it can happen. Like, I mean, it can really, really happen without you having to, uh, to take a huge amount of um, personal risk. So, you know, something, so I'm going to, I'm going to go on a total tangent here for a second, but for, for a while in, um, in college, I thought that I would, I wanted to go to film school because I was in college in the nineties and it was like right. the Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez era and everybody wanted to go to film school. And, um, and so I was doing all this research on it and there were two, there were two sort of like major film schools at the time. I'm sure that they still are, but, um, there was, uh, NYU and then there's USC, which is the university of Southern California. I think I'm not sure. I kind of focused on NYU because at, at NYU, everybody made a student film. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you had to show up with, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to make the student film you had to buy all the film. There wasn't really digital videotape, um, high deficient video at the time. And so you had to invest in all this film. You had to make a film. But everybody got to make a film. So it was it was much more sort of independent film school. And then USC, um, not everybody got to make a film. You had to convince other people to make a film um, because the school paid for everything. So there was a limited number of student films that would be made. And and I think that you can you can sort of draw the, I mean, it's a pretty reasonable analogy for a big corporate existence versus a small company existence. I mean, when you're in a small company, everybody gets to make a, a company if you want to, but you have to show up with it. You have to find all the funding. You have to do everything on your own. Um, and there's a lot of advantages to that. But uh, inside of a very large corporation, as long as you can convince everybody to do something, then you don't have to take as much personal risk. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's, it, there's trade-offs to either side. Um, mm-hmm. but at this point I'm 40 and I've got a nine-year-old son and, and I'm kind of enjoying, uh, being in a big corporation. It, it feels, uh, feels like I get to do some, I get to work on some pretty big projects with some pretty big companies that have a lot mm-hmm. of, um, impact, um, without having to, to take a lot of personal risk at this point. Mm-hmm. So. I think it's so. You mentioned that you're you're uh, you're forty and you have a nine year old son. I've sort of wondered what the career path for a software engineer is as you get into your late thirties and into your forties and fifties and and sixties uh, before you retire. What would you say? What would you say about that? that, that career arc. I mean, I know that I have this like this like fear that I don't know what to do with that once I'm thirty. 39 or uh, once I'm like 45, I'm not going to be able to get find a job and make ends meet because, you know, it's it's much cheaper and easier to hire someone who's 22 out of college working on, I don't know what kids are working on these days, Snapchat APIs or, or something like that. You know, what would you say about how your motivations have changed as as you've gotten gotten uh, more experienced and gotten older? <laughs> I, you know, when you turn 40, they actually come to your door and they collect all of your hoodies like you're not allowed to wear a hoodie. Oh no! Yeah. They can't take my hoodies. <laughs> my that? cold dead fingers. As long as I can keep my Adidas flip flops and yeah. other engineer peripherals. <laughs> you're probably even like your grandfather did. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, man. It's a it's a good uh, it's a good question, but I think I think it 
it even plays into the larger question of like, what's it like to get old? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm never so, going to find out. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> You'll be the only one, Miles. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Never. <laughs> um, you, you can age in a couple of different ways. I, I've known um, I've known people that uh, have aged in a way where they always have to remind you how into punk rock they were in high school, um, and it's like <laughs> constantly coming up casually in conversation when you know it's sort of like the, the touch point. That that keeps them feeling like they're not actually. I, I've never put that together before, but I'm just thinking through all the people I know that are like that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. exactly. Like the DIY also, Yeah, I'm thinking through the people too that are also always like, I remember them when that back in the original days before they were all mainstream, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> so there, there's that possible path. Um, but. You know, I, okay, so I'll, I'll get sort of practical. So in, in a, a lot of the advice that I give to um, younger engineers um, or younger in their career, a lot of, I, I've worked with a lot of engineers actually that their, the software development is really their second career, especially with the, the birth of code schools. You'll meet a lot hmm. of people that have had a successful career path in a particular field and then they, they go to code school and, and become developers. So they're kind of like starting a new career. Um, so age isn't always an indicator of where you're at in, in software engineering. Um, but you can definitely take, I think you can take one of two paths. One is to go a really deep technology path, um, which leads to, you know, you become a senior developer and become maybe something with architect in, in the title. And then eventually I think you end up as uh, you're on kind of a CTO path, especially if you're in the startup world. The, the other path is to stay technical, but start to manage teams, start to pay more attention to things like project management and client relationships. Um, and then uh, you, know, you become like a team lead and then a, um, maybe a manager, you go down that path, and that's sort of the, the VP of engineering path. Um, and then, you know, there's a third path where you uh, really start to maybe get more into design or um, into some of the ideas behind a product, a software product. Um, and then you could end up in product management and then you become VP of product. Um, so I've, I've played around with all three paths for myself personally, um, and I've, I've definitely veered towards uh, that sort of engineering and product split. So I like to spend a lot of time on, mm -hmm. on developing new products um, from a conceptual sort of idea, um, and then also definitely team, team management. So I think, that's, I think that's where you, I think you can, I think you can sort of chart that course for you in your, in your, second and third stage of your career. I won't tie it to decades in, in age, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, second, third stage. And then I don't know what happens after this. I mean, one of the interesting things is like, I've always felt in my career, like wherever I'm at, I start to think like, well, I have no idea what comes next. Right. <laughs> it's like, am I, you know, will I continue to progress? So you, you always get that kind of feeling, but things, things happen and you'll be surprised where it goes. So, one of the themes that I'm noticing across all of these interviews is that uh, we interview a lot of 
really successful people here um, who have really a lot of great thoughts on software. And the one of the themes that I'm seeing from all these all, all of these interviewees is that uh, everyone seems like they're not afraid to reinvent themselves. And I think that that's a really useful sc- uh, skill to have as you move into into the an uncertain future. Yeah, I think that's true. I think another one too is um, is being being open to uh, to luck a little mm-hmm. bit, being open to you know things happening. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I like I like analogies, and so an analogy that I use sometimes with this sort of thing is uh, somebody once somebody told me at some point like that chess um, playing playing good chess isn't so much about like knowing exactly what to do and having this really great strategy to you know, get the other guy's king. But it's it's more about uh, like playing positional chess where you just make sure you have all of your pieces in, in place so that when when your opponent either makes a mistake or, or there's an, whenever there's an opportunity, you can take advantage of the opportunity. And I think you can manage your career that way pretty effectively um, mm-hmm. where you just kind of just stay open to... Uh, to possibilities and then you know, good things can happen. The alternative is is being like Forrest Gump. Remember in Forrest Gump where they like there's the uh, the metaphor of a feather on the wind, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that sort of like zero career management, I think, is probably a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. But if you kind of go somewhere in the middle, like between having these like very hard, strict goals for yourself. And you know, toning it down just a tiny bit, and and kind of seeing where the road takes you, but being ready to take advantage of stuff, I think is a great way to manage your mm-hmm. career. So I think you made an analogy about uh, chess, which I especially appreciated because I play about three games of speed chess per day in the occipital oh. office. That's a good brain break for an engineer. In yeah. uh, one of the, and you said that. Uh, Playing great chess is about playing positional chess so that you have all your pieces in the in place so that uh, when your opponent makes a mistake or an opportunity presents itself, you can uh, take advantage of it. Could you tell me about like taking that analogy back to a software engineering career? What are the, sort of like the positional things that a young engineer who's on the CTO path or on any of the paths that you talked about should pay attention to? I mean, you know, is it building a network? Is it building a certain set of skills? How, how do you think about positional chess in the context of a career path? Yeah, I think, I think you nailed it with the, the, the two key things, like one, um, building a network and two, building skills. And so in terms of a network, I can give you, I mean, so my, my career took a significant turn um, in the early 2000s uh, when I, I was a systems administrator at the time um, and so I was, you know, doing a lot of, I was like working on big, um, Solaris Unix boxes and, um, and I had to write scripts, you know, I had to just write basic shell scripts and I could have just, you know, continued to do bash. Um, or at the time I think it was like SH scripts, you can't remember what it stands for. Um, and I started to get into Perl, and then eventually I, I got into Python, and I was writing you know, system scripts in Python. I really loved the Python programming language. Um, and I, I started the Chicago Python Usage Group in Chicago, and uh, met a ton of people um, 
and, and really built this network, which was interesting at the time because nobody was really using Python. Everybody that showed up to the Python users group, um, nobody was writing Python professionally. Everybody was just really into it um, because this was before Google sort of came public and said that mm -hmm. a bunch of their infrastructure was built on Python. Um, and the connection that I made to that user group were, you know, really, I mean, that's how I got hooked up with Threadless. That's how I um, got hooked up with Mozilla. Um, that's how I got my first sort of job transition from uh, just a regular developer into a uh, uh, manager sort of set of you know, the next big phase of my career. That's actually how I got my first programming job. I mean, you know, I can trace so many things back to to those two two events. Like one, learning a language that I didn't need to, but that I was interested in. So I sort of followed a passion, even though it didn't have immediate obvious payoffs. And two, um, building a network or, or creating opportunities to meet people um, that were also similarly similarly passionate about a language without it being like a networking thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that's that's usually the advice that I give people in that that sort of that sticky note game we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. is one like, hey, can you get out and and meet people at a user group? Or I guess they call them meetups now. We used to call them user groups in the early two thousands. Now we call them meetups. Um, and to you know, learn a language that's weird, right? Like <laughs> just something that's that's a little bit esoteric, um, changes the way you approach uh, problems, and and uh, kind of keeps you interesting. Like don't just do things just because uh, you know you can get paid for it. Um, so, and, and it's, interesting. I mean, even, I mean, I, I'm 40 now, but I'm still really active. We host the Boulder JavaScript meetup. Um, I, you know, I, I can't make all the meetings and I'm lucky that there's other people that can uh, mm -hmm. take care of a lot of logistics, but I still stay really involved in, in, in that sort of community, open, especially open source community world because I, I, I love it. And, I like meeting people that are similarly passionate. Little problems. Right. Likewise. Yeah, uh, what's, what, great point. what's your What's your weird language, Chris? Is it Clojure? Is it Haskell? Are you a uh, Erlang guy? Well, is Clojure even a weird language anymore? I mean, like you can. Write, <laughs> it's you gone can, mainstream. Yeah, it totally has. I was into Clojure before it's mainstream, man. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I uh, I do I. Every time I get like a, an itch to do something more esoteric, more like you know purely programmery, definitely break out closure. I'm also a, a music enthusiast and I like play around with synthesizers and stuff. And uh, Enclosure has this really awesome uh, language uh, or package called Overtone that lets you program synthesizers, um, which is cool. Mm -hmm. so, oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, yep. and I encourage people to learn closure. And I think I think we're actually on the verge right now inside of my group of making closure like a first class citizen. Because now now that we're in the enterprise world, we have to uh, figure out how to deploy applications and back end infrastructure stuff. And we're traditionally a Ruby on Rails shop at, at QuickLeft, um, which you know we had a hard time convincing sort of mainline. Fortune 500 
DevOps folks to support um, Rails, and I'm kind of I'm tired of fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been thinking about learning Java collectively as a group, but um, you know, we're, we're actually thinking about closure now. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Come okay. back on the show in six months. Later. Will do. Uh, I think uh, we should start uh, with our final questions. So I'll kick the first one off real quick. What is your favorite war story? Yeah, so so this happened to me really early um, in my career. It was my first, my second technology job. So I was kind of, I was new. I maybe had like a year and a half of experience, I think, at the time. And um and I screwed up something really bad. So, well, it wasn't super bad, but it was it was pretty bad. So we had a, a development server, and I um, was logged into it, and I was working on, I don't know what I was working on, but I thought, oh, I need to to clear the round table. I'm probably going to screw it up. I'm just a DevOps person whose ears burning right now. But uh, I, I did something that basically kicked everybody out of the server, including me. And so we couldn't physically get back into it. We had to go to it and like plug into the machine to get it uh, started again. And, and, it, and it, you know, it lost about a half a day's work for the entire development team. And we were a startup. And so that was, a, that was a big deal. Um, and, and I thought that I was going to be in a lot of trouble, but I was sitting at my desk, like super nervous. And, uh, the head of the networking group came over and, um, put this badge on me. He made me wear this, this badge. I'm not going to say what was on the badge because, because honestly, like it's, it was inappropriate, but it was a, it was basically a badge that said I had screwed up that today. Um, and then everybody came over and clapped for my screwed up. And, and it, it relieved like so much tension that I thought I was going to get in trouble, but instead they just sort of like made a joke of it. And, and I, I honestly can think back on that. And I think that that was, a pretty formative thing for me, and I, and I've tried to apply it to all the teams that I've worked on with less inappropriate jokes, but um, you know, keeping it light so that people don't feel like they're in a constant state of threat or like that they're you know, they should be worried about things all the time. So, so not not terribly catastrophic war story, but definitely it was. A, I think that's a really good one. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, what are your engineering war stories? Uh, sorry, we just asked that one. <laughs> um, uh, looking at my notes here. Uh, what are your engineering values? Engineering values? Um, well, definitely the, the idea that you know you should take risks and not, not feel threatened by them. Um, always... I feel like we covered a little bit of it, but like I'll always try to learn something new just for the the love of it instead of uh, constantly thinking about like where where this will take your career because like the, the best things happen sort of weirdly. Because I'm talking more about career management, like in terms of mm-hmm. on an on an engineering team, I don't know. I mean, I always write tests, always ask for code reviews, um, always be open to learn new things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, choose, choose a, a text editor or an IDE and get really good at it. Um, so, you know, I, I like Emacs a lot. Um, seems like most, most, uh, Oh shit. I thought the interview was going so well, but if you're an Emacs guy, <laughs> yeah, fuck it. 
<laughs> this is over. Vim for life. Yeah, what is it with when? When did Vim become so ascendant? I don't know exactly when that happened. Well, you know, in the hipster version, I've been using Vim since it was called VI. Um, so I'm, a, I'm an OG VI. <laughs> you were so punk rock in high school, Chris. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely was. I, I think your point about an IDE is 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 super important. I don't think anyone's articulated that on any of our episodes yet, but yeah, I mean, just getting really efficient with your keystrokes and with your coding makes you really fucking good at software. <laughs> I, stole, I stole the idea. I'll be honest. This is all from the book, um, the pragmatic programmer, which became, mm-hmm. you know, a publishing company, but, but the original pragmatic programmer has like a hundred points. And I think three of them have really stuck with me is the learn a new language every year. Um, really learn your IDE and uh, and SQL is not broken, which is just like code for um, if you have a problem in your code base, chances are it's not the implementation of SQL. It's like, you, you get where he's going with it. It's like it's probably mm-hmm. you. Like the problem is probably you. Like don't right. don't blame you know all these like sort of core underlying uh, code. <laughs> Libraries. Although, so, in, in, in the world today, if you're a Node developer, chances are one of your underlying libraries is totally broken. Like, there's so, like, the, the, the Node JavaScript world, um, I can't tell you the number of times I feel like I've gotten burnt by, you know, some sort of, like, small library that we relied on that was, like, a mm-hmm. page and a half of code um having an issue and then you've had to troubleshoot it which i don't mean to disparage the node one because node is like has has is one of my favorite communities and javascript is, is definitely mm-hmm. one of my favorite communities out there um but i've gotten burnt by little tiny npm modules more times than i can count so and the way the uh, npm modules can just be revoked and taken down yeah. and at any time yeah. so you're just the author changes the name like, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't like the yeah. Name. it's cool <laughs> other people don't rely on it as a dependency oh, so whatever. we've gotten through 30 episodes without shitting on javascript and here we go yeah here we go. <laughs> <laughs> started at episode one <laughs> yeah um all right so engineering values any that we missed uh by going off on this tangent <laughs> engineering values um just be cool Try not to try not to be that that engineer that okay. uh, causes problems and wants to get into arguments all the time. And you know, it's easy to make broad generalizations about the personality of people that are drawn to software mm-hmm. development. I don't think it's true. Um, you know, I, but don't don't think just because you're a software engineer, or software developer, that you have to like be a jerk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'd add on to that. Like, don't think that you're smarter than everyone else just because you're a software engineer. Yeah, that's another yeah. pattern I've seen. Yeah, I agree. Now it's the data scientist. Those ones. I, I know what you're talking about, but I've seen. I, I I think I've seen that thread in in pretty much every single type of engineer. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And Star Trek fans. It's like Star Trek fans. And- Doctor Who fans, <laughs> especially the ones that are that aren't into Spock, that are into McCoy and Kirk. What the yeah, fuck is their I, problem? I know. Jeez. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's see. We're we're getting really close to the end of the hour, so I have my final final question for you, and that's where can people find you online? 
oh geez, I don't even know anymore. I used to have a blog, I deleted my blog. It's funny, like at this point in my career, I mostly give people my LinkedIn link, which is uh, don't do that. Give sad. us your GitHub then. Yeah, GitHub is C McAvoy. Twitter is okay. C H McAvoy. Okay. I don't really tweet very much. I think you just gotta you just gotta come to Pearl Street and Boulder and, and knock on the door and ask for okay. me. That's how you can get a hold of me most of the Stand time. Stand forlornly outside of the quick left office and ask for Chris yes. McAvoy. All right. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I think I, I own chrismcavoy.org. Is that true? Yes. You know we have listeners, right? They they may actually show up and do that. Yeah. If you if you Google me, I think I take up I used to take up the whole front page of Google if you Googled Chris McAvoy. Now yes. I'm competing with this guy who uh there's a lawyer I compete with and then another guy who sells He's like a real estate agent, but I'm the cool Chris McAvoy on the first page of Google. You got to get on your personal branding, man. You don't even have a, uh, all you got is LinkedIn. I, I was into personal branding before they called it personal brand. <laughs> yeah, you had a blog, I guess, uh, and you yeah, went to user groups. So I had a blog when they used to call them web logs. <laughs> before it was shortened. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're de- degenerating towards the end of the episode, but uh, Chris, thanks so much for being on the show. It was really, really fun to have this conversation, and I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. Yep. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Find us at startupcto.io or on Twitter at startupcto.io. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode.